The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you today. And at times when we do this program, uh, there are topics that may be interesting and titillating and things. You talk about Jack the, the Ripper and those kind of things. But we're going to talk today about something uh, much more present day and extremely disturbing. And we're going to talk really with the foremost expert in America on this particular, probably in the world, on this particular topic. And uh, the topic is that of school shooters. And our guest is Dr. Peter Langman, Ph.D., and his book is Why Kids Kill Inside the Minds of School Shooters. Now, Dr. Langman has worked on this for years. He is the clinical director of psychology at Kids Peace, an organization that helps kids overcome emotional crises. He's the winner of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association's Psychology in the Media Award, and he has over 20 years of experience in treating at-risk youth, specializing in kids with homicidal tendencies. Now, he's appeared on CBS, BBC, CBC. He's been interviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Times, the LA Times, and thousands of other media outlets. And we're so glad to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Peter Langman, thank you for taking time to join us on the crime scene today. Thank you. So uh, let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, when did this phenomena start? What is the first instance of a known school shooter? Well, school violence goes back in American history a couple hundred years. But what we think of as modern school shootings, I tend to date uh, the beginning of this phenomenon with Charles Whitman in 1966, the mm-hmm. so-called Texas Tower Sniper. And uh, in uh, the work I'm currently doing, that's the the earliest school shooter that I focus on. And when you look at the school shooter, is there a common thread that goes across most of these school shooters? Or does it seem to just be a mixed bag and all of them have their different reasons for doing what they do? You know, it's a little bit of each... um, there's no such thing as a profile of school shooters. Um, there's not much we can say that they all have in common. But it's not totally random either. And what I present in my book is uh, three categories or three types of people who tend to commit school shootings. So there's categories we can put them into. And within those categories, they share a lot of similarities. Um, but as I said, it's hard to say that there's any one thing that they all tend to have in common. Now, uh, we, we te- uh, as you said, we, we, this is something that, that has been going on since 1966, I guess. Um, is there, uh, the thought is somebody with a machine gun. Uh, do most school shooters use some kind of automatic weapon or is it just an array of different, uh, different weapons and we just hear about the ones with uh, automatic and semi-automatic weapons more than the others? You know, uh, school shooters tend to use a, a wide array of weapons. Generally, I would not say it's that high-powered in terms of a machine gun. I can't think off the top of my head of any that had an actual machine gun, fully automatic weapon. Usually, it's um, what they can get from their family home, so it might be a hunting rifle, a shotgun. Sometimes there's handguns used. Um, it's a real mix depending on uh, the age of the 
perpetrator um, and whether or not they're able to buy guns on their own or if they're just taking them from their parents' or grandparents' homes. Kind of the template that we see in the media, at least my perception is, these are kids who are bullied, they're loners, uh, they don't necessarily have a lot of friends. Um, just when the topic of school shooters comes to mind, that's what comes to my mind. Uh, is that pretty much accurate, or is that just kind of an overgeneralization? I would say that's really an overgeneralization. I would say most school shooters are not loners. They often have friends. Um, they may have a history of girlfriends. When you're talking about older shooters, some of them are actually married and have children. Um, they're not people living lives in isolation like Adam Lanza at Sandy Hook. He was really an aberration, not the norm among school shooters in terms of being such a loner. Similarly, most of them are not really victims of bullying. A few have been significantly bullied, both verbal harassment as well as physical assault. But those are the minority. Um, you know, any kid in middle school or high school might get a, a little teasing or taunting now and then, but that's not the same as bullying that's going to drive someone to commit murder. Uh, I think the media has really uh, misrepresented the uh, significance of bullying when it comes to school shootings. Why do you think this is in the last, let's say, less than the last 50 years, really come into, I guess, in vogue, for lack of a better phrase. Why has, is there something about our national psyche? I mean, I know there's violence and school violence in other countries, but it seems that it, it, it is more active here in America. So I guess, is there anything about this time, generally, the last few decades, and this place, North America or America specifically, that has kind of engendered or created the perfect storm for this to occur? You know, those are really important questions, and people struggle to answer them. There's no clear explanation as to why, for example, in the 1990s and on, the United States has seen so many more rampage school attacks than other countries. You know, some people point to the easy access to guns, but that was true um, before the 1990s. Sure. Um, some no, I was saying, sure, that there was easy access. Uh, access. I was agreeing with you. Right, okay. So, you know, obviously, without access to guns, you wouldn't have school shootings, but there's nothing new that happened in the 1990s in terms of access to weapons. Other people look to um, the rise of the Internet and the, the extreme saturation coverage that major school shootings have received, uh, so it's different than... You know, decades back when a school shooting might have made local news, but not national and international news. And, you know, more younger people are having greater access to the news. So there may be more of a copycat factor. Kids are being influenced by others who have committed shootings, and maybe that kind of removes the taboo for them. So to an extent, it may be a phenomenon that feeds on itself, that has gained a certain amount of momentum and now is... Uh, self-perpetuating. In terms of the media, uh, I mean, I guess I'm in the media of sorts here doing podcasting, but in terms of the mainstream news media, it's a tough, it's a tough call because these shootings, uh, Sandy Hook comes to mind or further back Columbine, they're certainly newsworthy. There's no question about that. Um, to me, it would seem that the line 
is in degrees. You know, should they have Anderson Cooper uh, camped out for a week? And I'm just picking on him because I just thought of him. But you know what I'm saying? Should mm-hmm. should media have somebody camped out for a week and, and make it wall to wall, twenty four hour a day coverage? Are they in some way uh, contributing? Have any media outlets kind of approached you? Maybe the management of media outlets or so forth and said. Um, doctor, uh, doctor, are, are we overdoing this? Should we take a look at this? Do you think there's really concern or do you think that the media are just, Hey, this is a great story. We are going to cover it wall to wall and get as many ratings as we can get. Yeah, I think there is some introspection within, uh, parts of the media. Uh, certainly with the attack at Virginia tech by some we show when MSNBC received Joe's so-called multimedia manifesto, which included a videotape of himself kind of going off on rants against the world. Initially, MSNBC was broadcasting those. So um, they were giving him essentially a forum for his paranoid, delusional thinking. And there was such an outcry from people, especially families of the victims of Virginia Tech, that they uh, stopped putting those uh, video clips out. So, you know, there was some response to public outrage over giving him a forum. So the the story obviously needed to be covered, but how you cover it and the prominence you give to the shooter is open to debate. And with Sandy Hook, again, there was overwhelming coverage of the incident. There was much less focus on the perpetrator and more focus on the suffering of the victim. So they weren't giving the perpetrator uh, the same kind of platform or attention as they did with Virginia Tech. Something I don't understand about school shooters, and I'd be interested in your perspective of it, is when they decide that day they're going to go in and pull the trigger and kill X amount of people that it is either literally going to be the end of their life or the end of their life in terms of having any kind of normalcy. You know, chances are they're either going to be killed or incarcerated for the rest of their lives if they're caught, and they're almost always certainly caught in these high-profile cases. Don't they get that, or are they just so wrapped up in whatever their motivation is that they don't really care? You know, I think you kind of nailed it with that last comment that they're so caught up in their own internal world, their own anguish, depression, outrage, whatever, that at that point, in that moment, they don't care. Or they haven't even thought ahead to think, I'm either going to be dead or in jail for the rest of my life. So that thought process might not even happen. Or if it does, at that point, they don't care. Many of them are suicidal. So they're going in intending to die Anyway, their lives are over as far as they're concerned. They're going to shoot themselves or expect to be gunned down by police. But they also want to take some people with them because they're so full of rage. So in that moment, their life or death really doesn't matter. They may even be expecting to die. One thing is, uh, you know, playing armchair amateur psychologist, and by no means do I mean that as an insult to you because you're a real one who has decades of experience. But just looking at these, I almost, when I see one of these, I almost think it's a 
power grab. Like these kids are saying, ah, I'll show you. I ultimately have the power to say who lives and dies. Is that, again, an, an oversimplification, or is that part of the phenomenon? I think that's a very big part of the phenomenon. In fact, you almost quoted Eric Harris exactly with your comment. So um, very good insight on your part. Eric Harris, um, well before the attack, communicated to a friend online that he wished he had the power of life and death. He wanted to be able to say who lives and who dies. He wanted to be godlike, and that's exactly what he wrote. For Eric, it was very much about having the power of life and death. And I think the issue of power and the broader issue of masculinity and establishing yourself as a powerful male is a big motivation for many of these shooters. They feel powerless. They feel like they're nobody. How do you feel like somebody? How do you make the world sit up and take notice? Well, one way to do it is to bring a gun to school and start shooting. Interesting. And and that brings to question this question. Um, and I can't recall one off of the top of my head. Has there ever been a female school shooter in recent history? There have been several, <clears throat> several school shooters who were female. Actually, back in uh, 1979, a 16-year-old girl named Brenda Spencer committed a sniper attack against her former elementary school. Um, in 1996, a 19-year-old woman named Jillian Robbins opened fire on a uh, campus of Penn State University. Um, back in 1988, a 30-year-old woman went on a really bizarre rampage attack against many people, including gunning down several elementary school children. And then most recently, in 2010, a female professor named Amy Bishop at the University of Alabama in oh, Huntsville yeah. opened fire and shot six people in uh, the biology department, of which she was a member. So you do get uh, females of different ages from 16 up into uh, you know, 30 and you know, around uh, mid-40s for Amy Bishop. So it does occur. It's obviously much less common than male school shooters, but it's uh, by no means unknown to have a female shooter. I, um, I'm calling you from the northeastern Ohio area. And we had a school shooting here, Chardon High School, um, about uh, oh, going on a year and a half ago. And um, the young man who allegedly committed that shooting um, has shown no remorse. In fact, he wore a T-shirt uh, to court uh, saying, uh, I believe it had killer written on it. So has there ever been a school shooter who has survived in later shown remorse for their crime? Uh, I mean, from what I've seen, most of them either die or if they live, uh, they don't necessarily show remorse. Has there ever been any school shooters that said, uh, my God, I, I, this was just a horrible thing to do? Yes, there have been uh, a good number of school shooters who survived, and uh, several of them have been horribly uh, racked with guilt and anguish over what they have done. And several of them, literally could not live with what they had done and attempted to kill themselves in jail. One of them actually did kill himself uh, while in prison after the attack. So some of them do have a conscience. That conscience and empathy is overridden uh, in a state of crisis when they're full of rage, full of depression, maybe uh, paranoid, maybe psychotic, not really thinking clearly, and they 
commit an act that later they are absolutely horrified by. So, you know, some school shooters do have a conscience, but they can lose touch with that in a moment of crisis. Have, have talking with those people, I'm, assume, I'm assuming you've spoken with some of them and familiar with uh, other psychologists' uh, work with them. Have those interactions provided any valuable insights on the motivation behind this phenomena? Um, you know, talking with shooters after the fact sometimes yields interesting information, insightful information. Um, sometimes they're more focused on trying to justify or minimize what they've done. So it depends on the individual school shooter how meaningful post-attack interviews are. In some cases, they have shed a great deal of light on the dynamics, and some school shooters, for example, were schizophrenic and having hallucinations, hearing voices, talking to them, and so on. And prior to the attack, no one had been aware of that. So in those cases, we learn a lot about what was going on in the minds of the shooters. Now... Let's turn our discussion a little bit to what we can do to prevent uh, these shootings. Now, the hot topic these days is gun control. And while certainly if someone doesn't have a gun, um, they can't necessarily shoot anyone. But uh, there are many people who will point out gun control is not a guarantee that people, A, wouldn't be able to get guns. And B, if they weren't able to get guns, they would become a school bomber or they would come to school with a machete or, or whatever. Um, so, so the the topic of gun control, of course, I'm interested in your your um, ideas on on that. But in addition, what other things that we can do in terms of prevention, in terms of better diagnosis, um, in terms of interventions before we get to this point? Uh, what what are some highlights of some of the things that that you recommend? Okay, I do not think that gun control per se is going to stop school shootings. Um, as I said earlier, you know, many of the shooters, the younger ones, are taking guns from uh, their own homes. So their parents, uh, grandparents, other relatives are gun owners legally, and the kids have access to the gun. So my focus when I do trainings on how to prevent school shootings is not the politics of gun control. It's more about the common sense of not having children and adolescents able to have access to guns in their own homes, especially when you have reason to be concerned about them. So, for example, in the case of Adam Lanza, he was very clearly a young man with significant mental health problems. And there have been other cases where the parents knew their kids were severely depressed, full of rage, you know, seeing a psychologist, psychiatrist, etc., struggling with mental health issues, but there were guns accessible in the home. So, you know, I urge parents to use better judgment in cases like that so that, you know, disturbed young people do not have easy access in their own homes to firearms. And uh, that's a question because some people refer to these school shooters as evil. Um, Do you think that in some cases that is accurate or these are just people almost in... I guess what I'm asking is, in almost all cases, do you think there's some psychological disorder or component to this, or are some of these people just mean? I think some of them have a real sadistic streak. In other words, they're mean, they enjoy being mean, 
They want to have the power to make people suffer, to make people die. So in some cases, you do get that uh, type of personality. More commonly, the shooters either have significant mental health problems like schizophrenia, um, they're very depressed, and a good number of them have really tra uh, traumatic family histories. Their parents were alcoholics or drug addicts in and out of jail. The kids were physically abused, sometimes sexually abused. They bounce around from home to home. They're living in poverty and so on. So these are kids who are highly distressed, um, full of anger at what they've lived through, but also full of anguish and maybe suicidal, and they end up committing an act of violence that then they come to regret terribly. So you do see a range of perpetrators, some who might see more, quote, evil, unquote, um, in terms of just being mean, lacking a conscience, having that sadistic streak, and others who are more mentally ill, and others who are just really traumatized, abused kids coming from chaotic backgrounds. I can't think of uh, a greater nightmare scenario for a parent. I know as a parent of two kids, anytime I see one of these reports, uh, I think, uh, uh, oh my goodness, uh, uh, therefore, by the grace of God, go I. And you automatically think the next day when your kids go out the door, my gosh, I pray that nothing like this uh, befalls us uh, or befalls anybody for that matter. But it really hits home when you have school-age kids. Um, as parents, uh, both from the standpoint of our own kids and of the standpoint of things that are happening in the school, what are warning signs that there may be an at-risk youth capable of doing something uh, uh, like this? What what should we watch out for? Hey, well, when I give talks to parents or school professionals or law enforcement people, you know, I'm emphasizing what's called attack-related behavior. And that's really very simple. It's anything that indicates someone may be planning an attack. It could be warning their friends to stay away on a certain day because they're going to bring a gun that day. It could be trying to recruit a friend to join them. It could be stockpiling weapons, guns, bombs, whatever. It could be you know, drawing diagrams at the school to plan where to set up a sniper position. Um, any evidence that someone is planning an attack needs to be responded to immediately. And, you know, when I'm working with school professionals, I say not only the teachers and staff need to be taught what to look for, but most importantly, the students need to be taught what to look for and what to do when they see it. Because if anyone knows what's going on among the student body, it's the students. So they're really like the eyes and the ears for the school. So it's the kids who need to be taught the warning signs and what to do if a friend uh, wants you to stay away or tries to get you to join the attack or is talking about bringing a gun to school. And the students need to know where to go with that information. And when attacks have been prevented, most commonly it's because the students came forward with what they know. Have you had any scenarios where you've talked to kids who have been um, near victims of this? They've been at the school uh, Thank God they survived, but they said, gee, I missed this, or I should have reported that, or I should have known that they were going to do this. Anything like that? I have not talked personally with such students, but you know, that's a, a nightmare scenario to be able to think back. You know, I knew something, and I 
didn't tell anybody, and then they have to live with that, and that could be uh, terribly difficult, especially if uh, people were killed in those attacks. So in working with students around the issue of reporting, I think the schools need to do more than just say report what you hear, but talk to them about the implications of reporting and the implications of not reporting. And yes, if you report, you might get a friend angry at you. But if you don't report, your friend may be dead, you may be dead, other friends may be dead, and you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. So part of the process in prevention is not just telling kids what to look for and that they should report it, but helping them think through the ramifications of their actions and, you know, make them understand what's really at stake someone is talking about bringing a gun to school. And if you don't report that, you know, what does that mean for you and for everyone in the community? Rarely on these programs do I engage in personal uh, opinions or beliefs. I think that's for my guests. But in this case, after Sandy Hook happened, I had an idea. And I want to throw it out there. And I, I think most people will disagree with it. But I, uh, my thought was, why not um, station at every school in America a armed to the teeth security guard. And I'm not talking about Fred, the friendly security guard, but basically a Marine and that such things would a hopefully be a deterrent and and stop anybody from thinking that they could do something like this because they would pretty much know that Biff, the Marine would uh, um, prevent them from doing that or B uh, if God forbid somebody was crazy enough to try to do something like this, that this person would be capable of stopping them. Because I think of the poor teachers who went to the front line at Sandy Hook and tried to stop this uh, uh, insane person or and, and, and end up dying. And, and, and this all still happened. Is my idea kind of a broad overreaction that would change the whole uh, fabric of, of schools? Or is it something that has some merit? Well, let me talk about a couple of things related to that idea, because obviously that's something that's been under discussion, especially since Sandy Hook. First of all, armed security guards do not necessarily stop attacks. You know, for example, at Columbine High School, there was an armed security guard. That did not prevent Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold from entering the school and, and you know, going on their rampage. Um, Another school in Red Lake, Minnesota, also had an armed security guard. The 16-year-old perpetrator, Jeffrey Weiss, um, shot him down, killed him, um, walked through the school's metal detector, and went ahead with his rampage. So having an armed guard does not necessarily prevent an attack. You know, what a lot of schools have is something called a school resource officer. And these are people who are... Um, law enforcement officials who are trained in the use of firearms, but they're also trained to have relationships with the students. They learn some basic you know, counseling skills. They're in the milieu, so they, they get to know the kids. They work with the school staff. They try to build relationships with kids who may be struggling, but they are armed and trained in you know, use of uh, defensive tactics if necessary. So, Rather than just a so-called security guard at the door, I think a better option is to have your school resource officer in place. And some schools have them, uh, other schools don't. I think it's a growing movement in the country to have 
school resource officer, sort of a hybrid position between armed guard and school counselor. And I think that's uh, a more effective way to uh, prevent violence in schools. Well, it's been a great discussion, very eye-opening, and uh, certainly a very important issue. Uh, I think most people would agree with that, and we really appreciate your time and expertise. Where can folks go to learn more about your work and also to find your book, and and uh, what what's kind of the hot-button thing that you're working on right now? Well, a um, couple of things. My book is available at you know, multiple websites online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and so on, and certainly Barnes & Noble stores uh, may carry it as well. And uh, I have a website, uh, schoolshooters.info, I-N-F-O. So once again, schoolshooters.info. There's a massive amount of documentation on several dozen school shooters, and there's reports on how to prevent school shootings and conduct threat assessment teams and so on. So there's a lot of material for educational, mental health, and law enforcement professionals there. And currently I'm working on a new book, and uh, that's going to be a much broader view of school shooters uh, in terms of age and settings. I'm looking at college shooters and adult shooters, such as Adam Lanza, not just middle school and high school shooters. So that's uh, what I'm working on currently. Great. Well, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate it. It's been a fascinating discussion. Our guest has been Dr. Peter Langman, and we will talk to you next time on The Crime Scene. Stay safe, everybody. Bye-bye. 